I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode of American Biography is brought to you by Audible.com. It's summertime, folks, and that means travel season. Do you have a long drive or flight ahead of you? If you do... Your music collection will only get you so far. Audible is the world's largest producer of spoken audio entertainment. And with over 150,000 downloadable audiobooks to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player, it's sure to have something to make sitting in traffic or sitting in the airport more bearable. So make sure you visit www.audibletrial.com forward slash American Biography, and sign up for your free trial and free audiobook download to take with you. HistoryPodcasters.com network. This is The Life of John Marshall, Episode 9, Bonds. First off, I want to apologize if I sound a bit off. I've had a really bad cold. In fact, I've been waiting for it to go away, and that's one of the reasons that this episode is so late. But since it's not going away, I've decided to soldier on. Secondly, before we get started... I wanted to mention that I recently had the opportunity to do two historical readings on the Ten American Presidents episode about George Washington, narrated by the great Mike Duncan. So you should definitely check that out. You can find it on iTunes or by going to 10USP.com. Okay, so to recap, in our last episode, we saw Marshall going to extremes to participate in the War for Independence only to abruptly resign his officer's commission in order to pursue his civilian life. This episode, we're going to look at two starkly different relationships in Marshall's life. And because of this, the episode is going to have a slightly different format. Up until now, we've pretty much followed a straightforward chronological path. And we'll start off that way by talking about Marshall's budding career and his relationship with Polly Ambler. 
But then, we're going to break the chronology to discuss John Marshall's lifelong relationship with the peculiar institution of slavery. Now, I know these seem like widely divergent topics. However, there is a natural segue, and in writing the episode, I felt that it worked, so I went with it. I hope you let me know what you think. Great. So let's get started. Because of the tumultuous times in which they lived, and which often called Marshall away, John and Polly's courtship had not always been smooth. In fact, there is at least one allusion made to Polly for a time being courted by another man, a major dick, who Beveridge mercifully elaborates on and identifies as Richard Anderson. Another story that comes to us from John and Polly's youngest son, Edward Marshall, tells of how Polly rejected an early marriage proposal of John's. Edward says, She being so young and bashful that she said no when she meant to say yes. The mistake, however, was corrected some time after by the kind offices of a cousin, a Mr. Ambler. Seeing how things were, he sent to the disappointed lover a lock of her hair, cut without her knowledge. My father, supposing she had sent it, renewed his suit, and they were married. Assuming that Polly was in fact aware of the difference between no and yes, I'd love to know what exactly was behind this brief breakup, but have unfortunately not been able to find any specific details of the root cause. But we do know that the lock of hair, which eventually reunited them, Polly afterwards placed in a locket which she wore for the next 48 years around her neck, unto her death, at which time John Marshall took it and wore it to the end of his days. Attesting to the at times rocky nature of their early relationship is a letter Marshall wrote his wife many years later detailing their courtship. I begin with the ball at York and with the dinner on the fish at your house the next day. I then retrace my visit to York, our splendid assembly at the palace in Williamsburg, my visit to Richmond, where I acted Pa for a fortnight, my return the ensuing fall, and the very welcome reception you gave me on your arrival from Dover, our little tiffs and makings up, my feelings while Major Dick was courting you, my trip to the cottage, the lock of hair, my visit again to Richmond the ensuing fall, and all the thousand indescribable but deeply affecting instances of your affection or coldness which constituted for a time the happiness or misery of my life and will always be recollected with a degree of interest which can never be lost while recollection remains. Historian Albert Beveridge editorializes a bit when he writes the following lines, which I absolutely love. Marshall made love as he made war with all of his might. A very hurricane of a lover he must have been. However cheeky this quote, it does reflect a basic truth. This is that Marshall was a passionate youth, particularly where Polly Ambler was concerned. Passion alone, though, could only take their relationship so far and John needed to find a job if that relationship was going to continue. 
Eight months after John's February 1781 resignation from the army, British General Cornwallis had surrendered his army at Yorktown, and though formal peace would not follow until 1783, for all intents and purposes the war was effectively over. Between his resignation and the spring of 1782, Marshall alternated between Oak Hill and Richmond, and after the prodding of friends, in order to be nearer to Polly, John threw his hat in the ring for one of the open Fauquier County seats for the Virginia legislature. After his eventual victory at the polls, his duties brought him to Richmond, where his heart lay. He took up his seat in April of 1782, where his attendance earned him 10 shillings a day. His total pay for the first session was 24 pounds, 5 shillings, and this included travel expenses. A podcast side note here, I'm not even going to attempt to understand the post-revolution currency valuation in Virginia, but if anyone has a good explanation about monetary equivalency with today's currency, please send me an email and I'll be sure to read it out next time. But for now, the sources seem to agree that it was a rather modest income, though apparently it was sufficient enough that in November, John and Polly settled on a wedding date for early 1783. Conveniently, after their engagement, it's amazing how quickly Marshall's prospects began perking up. The courts in Virginia were open again, and Marshall received a timely assist from another one of his numerous cousins, Edmund Randolph, a former attorney general of Virginia, who remained one of the top lawyers in the state, gave John the free use of his offices until he could get his practice up and running. This event coincided with Jocelyn Ambler, the state treasurer, and let's not forget Polly's father, using his immense influence in the legislature to get John elected to the Council of State when a spot opened up there in November of 1782. This council was a constitutionally powerful executive advisory board that met daily to discuss and plan the governance of the state. One assumes such a council would be packed with wise old graybeards and that Marshall at 27 was an anomaly. This, however, wasn't the case, and John's old friend James Monroe, a Jefferson protege, was also elected to the council that year at the tender age of 24. But regardless of their ages, the councillors each received a cool 400 pounds a year for their services, and that seems to have been a very respectable income. Yay, nepotism! With his finances finally on a firmer footing, Marshall could prepare for his pending nuptials. Finding an appropriate venue, however, posed a bit of a problem. Richmond in 1783 was still a relatively new settlement, and not a particularly developed one. The capital had only been relocated there since 1780 as both a defensive measure and as a reflection of the shift in the state's political power away from the coastal tidewater elites towards the more populous western Piedmont area. But still, three years later, it retained much of the appearance of a frontier settlement. The population was less than 1,200, and there were only about 200 rudely constructed homes the roads were unpaved, and the whole place smelled of stock animals. As important a state officer as Jocelyn Ambler was, 
even he was subject to the realities of the housing market, and upon his arrival, he and his family were forced to move into a small house of which Eliza Ambler wrote that her whole family could scarcely stand up altogether in it. But ultimately, she sadly concluded that it was the only decent tenement to be had. Jean Smith delves into some interesting tidbits on the contemporary marriage practices in Virginia for Marshall's time. He writes, According to Virginia statutes that dated to 1631, a marriage license issued by the governor or his agent was required before a wedding could take place. In 1660, a law was passed requiring a marriage bond. Persons who wished to be married were required to appear before the county clerk and give bond with sufficient security that there was no lawful cause to prevent the marriage. The clerk then prepared the license, which was presented to the minister who performed the ceremony. So in accordance with these regulations, John Marshall handed over 50 pounds for a wedding bond to the clerk of Henrico County, wherein Richmond is located, on January 1st, 1783. And two days later, he and the nearly 17-year-old Polly were wed. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Following the ceremony, the guests were treated to a large dinner and dancing lasted all through the night until dawn. Marshall later said that after paying the officiant, he only had a single guinea left to his name. Though Marshall's marriage, as we've already observed, paid handsomely, in terms of networking and social standing, 
There was at the time very little ready money circulating in Virginia, and it didn't bring to him a great deal of material wealth. Luckily, this truly appears to have been a love match, and the newlyweds happily settled into a one-story wood-framed house in Richmond, boasting of a grand total of two rooms. And as a wedding gift, Thomas Marshall gave his eldest son and new daughter three horses and a slave. Now, because Marshall's many long years on the bench will never have him confront the constitutional issue of slavery as an institution in a direct way, at this point, I feel at liberty to use Thomas Marshall's wedding gift as a segue in order to discuss the 800-pound gorilla in the telling of any American life prior to 1865 and temporarily break the chronological narrative in order to explore John Marshall's lifelong relationship with the institution of slavery. As I will definitely be touching upon this issue again in varying degrees in subsequent biographies on this show, before proceeding, I first want to give my basic philosophical overview about how I intend to approach discussions about slave owners. It boils down to this. Slavery existed in the United States and was wholly intertwined with the political and economic development of the nation through the American Civil War. In addition to this, for the Southerner, it was also a cultural keystone around which their societies grew and upon which they were ordered. To try and skirt the topic or diminish its centrality to the history of the United States is injudicious scholarship. Speaking as a person of the 21st century, I, of course, abhor and condemn slavery absolutely. As a historian, however, objectivity demands less absolutism, not for the institution, but for forming accurate judgments about the individuals that participated in and perpetuated the system. There were good men who owned slaves, and there were bad men who owned slaves. Painting both with the same condemnatory brush based on a shared circumstance of their otherwise unique lives does not illuminate, it does not edify, it is an oversimplification and is poor history. This is not the same as excusing the institution or the individual's culpability within it. It is, however, a recognition of the reality that existed in the United States through 1865, and that to be a national politician a regular participant within the national economy, or a southerner, meant to some degree making accommodation with slavery's existence, and I will reserve the right to recognize that some individuals made these accommodations with more or less enthusiasm, and to base historical judgments about individuals on the totality of their characters and deeds, and not just upon a single shameful aspect of their lives. So, hoping that I've stated my position with sufficient clarity, let's continue. John Marshall grew up in a society where slavery was not only acceptable, but the norm. During his impoverished youth, I've seen no mention of household slaves, but as Thomas Marshall's personal wealth grew, that certainly would have changed. By 1783, when John married, his father owned 2,000 acres of land in Falkworth County, and at least 22 slaves. This would not have been shocking to John. In fact, Professor Francis Howell Rudko makes the rather obvious observation that Marshall negotiated his way through the social and economic life of the institution 
with the ease of a southern slave owner. John Marshall owned slaves his entire adult life. However, as he was not involved in large-scale farming, he owned relatively few slaves compared to some contemporaries, yet his account books attest to his full participation in the buying and selling of human beings. Census figures can give us a rough idea of the scale we're talking about, and these show that in 1810 he owned 16 slaves, by 1830 only 7. The slave Thomas Marshall gifted his son on his wedding day was named Robin Spurlock. He would remain John's body servant until Marshall's death in 1835. In Marshall's will, Spurlock would be given the choice of freedom, but unlike Marshall's hero George Washington, who emancipated all of his slaves in his will, Spurlock would be the only one of John's slaves to be manumitted upon his death. Overall, however, Marshall seems to have been uneasy with slavery. This strange dichotomy of an inherent dislike for slavery but full participation in the system is unfortunately rather usual for the revolutionary generation, many of whom decried the practice and loudly wished that some solution could be found to this seemingly intractable problem. In Marshall's case, there are several strings to pull at that may help us understand his views. On one hand, Marshall was an early member of the American Colonization Society, practically from its founding in 1817. He, in fact, purchased a lifetime membership in 1819, and he also served as president of the Virginia chapter of the society from 1823 until his death. His participation in this group, which advocated the voluntary emancipation of slaves, can justifiably be used to indicate that he was on the whole against slavery. However, before we get all warm and fuzzy about this, it should be made clear that this group had no designs whatsoever on establishing a harmonious biracial society founded on notions such as equality. No. As the name suggests, the goal was to encourage the freeing of slaves, but also to deport the emancipated slaves back to Africa. However, as Rudko points out in her essay, colonization was the moderate middle way at the time. She writes, Literature on the American Colonization Society often concentrates on the conflict between the abolitionist program for emancipation and that of the colonizationalists. The abolitionists proposed immediate, unconditional, and universal emancipation, whereas the colonizationists proposed gradual, conditional, and voluntary emancipation, and concentrated on removing the emancipated from white society. The abolitionists courted civil war. The colonizationists courted accommodation. Unlike many other southern colonizationists who didn't believe in large federal undertakings, Marshall consistently supported the notion that the federal government should be responsible for funding a program of emancipation and colonization. Marshall's feelings on this were similar to those of James Madison, who believed that slavery was a national problem which required a national response, and that only the federal government possessed the resources required to pull off a scheme that satisfied everyone, except that is, of course, the former slave who, in the equation, still had no say and was being shipped to another continent they likely had not been born in and knew little to nothing about.
Marshall was, above all things, a pragmatist, and the following excerpt from a letter written to his friend Timothy Pickering of Massachusetts demonstrates his moral ambivalence about slavery. I concur with you in thinking that nothing portends more calamity and mischief to the southern states than their slave population. Yet they seem to cherish the evil and to view with immovable prejudice and dislike everything which may tend to diminish it. I do not wonder that they should resist any attempt should one be made to interfere with the rights of property, but they have a feverish jealousy of measures which may do good without the hazard of harm that is, I think, very unwise. Quotes like this give the feeling that the slavery question for Marshall was less about the morality of the issue and more about his perception that slavery was a rock on which the Union might break to the detriment of Virginia. In this light, Marshall's support of voluntary emancipation and colonization schemes as temporizing measures, which might be used to placate both the anti-slave North and the Southern slaveholder, while allowing the latter to gradually transition away from a troubled economic and social system and thus preserving the Union, makes sense. Marshall's pragmatism relating to slavery and his willingness to sublimate it to the exigencies of the Union plays out over his years on the bench as well, in rulings which tangentially touched upon slavery, as ably demonstrated in Leslie Friedman Goldstein's essay on the topic of slavery and the Marshall Court. Goldstein shows that over the 30-plus years Marshall served as Chief Justice, one can draw a line of demarcation at the year 1817. She writes, Until 1817, the court appears to have given priority to firming up property rights of slaveholders, where laws applied in arguably ambiguous or debatable ways. From 1817 onward, the Marshall Court often gave priority to liberty, interpreting the laws in pro-liberty directions where the laws spoke ambiguously enough to make this feasible. Goldstein has several ideas what may have caused this shift. For instance, after 1817, the cases which came before the court were more often related to the slave trade than personal property, which, she points out, was an area where federal law had clearly expressed itself, having banned the importation of slaves since 1807. So in this estimation, Marshall, while no activist on the subject, was happy to act upon his latent anti-slavery instincts once he felt federal law drifting in that direction and could provide him cover, an argument I find plausible. But Goldstein seems to strike close to the truth when she touches upon the paternalistic and more benign sort of racism that I feel not only characterized Marshall, but other quote-unquote, enlightened slave owners of the time, and ties Marshall's willingness to be harsher on slavery after 1817 to the rise of the aforementioned colonization movement. She writes, It is certainly conceivable that for the judicial votes of morally troubled slave owners, Marshall and Washington, podcast side note, and she refers here to like-minded Associate Justice Bushrod Washington, their being able to conceive of a way to set the slaves free without imposing millions of unlettered black people on Southern society 
was what freed up their consciences to rule in more pro-liberty ways from 1817 on. Marshall's overall arc seems to be one where he grew more contemptuous of slavery as he aged. Harriet Martineau, a Washington socialite, relates a tale from 1834, late in Marshall's life. She says, Chief Justice Marshall, a Virginian, a slaveholder, and a member of the Colonization Society, though regarding this society as being merely a palliative and slavery incurable but by convulsion, observed to a friend of mine in the winter of 1834 that he was surprised at the British for supposing they could abolish slavery in their colonies by act of Parliament. He could not think that such economical institutions could be done away with by legislative enactment. When it was done, the Chief Justice remarked on his having been mistaken, and that he rejoiced in it. He now saw hope for his beloved Virginia, which he had seen sinking lower and lower among the states. The cause, he said, was that work is disreputable in a country where a degraded class is held to enforce labor. He had seen all the young, the power of the state, who were not rich enough to remain at home in idleness, betaking themselves to other regions where they might work without disgrace. Now there was hope, for he considered that with this act of the British, the decree had gone forth against American slavery, and its doom was sealed. And in this, some of his final words on the topic, he condemns the institution of slavery, but again, not because of its inherent injustice or brutality, or because of what it does to the enslaved, but really because of how it affects white society. And I believe, ultimately and disappointingly, this is where Marshall stood regarding the subject of slavery. All right, that's going to be all for this episode. Next time, please join me when we resume the chronology and look at Marshall as a legislator and a lawyer. In the meantime, please remember that this show relies on listener support. You can find my electronic tip jar at the website AmericanBiography.webs.com where you'll see a little PayPal donate button. Or you can sign up for a free audiobook at www.audibletrial.com forward slash American Biography. And when you sign up, Audible will throw me a few much appreciated dollars. But listener support doesn't have to be monetary only. You can always help by writing a nice iTunes review or by telling any of your friends or family you think might be interested to give the show a listen. And remember, you can interact with American Biography on Facebook or Twitter at American underscore bio or email me at AmericanBiographyPodcast at gmail.com. And that's all I've got for today. But before you go... I really encourage you to stay tuned for just another minute or two as my fellow HistoryPodcaster.com member, Travis Dow, a true podcaster extraordinaire, tells you a little bit about the eclectic collection of shows he produces and co-hosts. Thanks, everybody. I'll talk to you soon. It's all yours, Travis. Good evening. I'm Travis Dow from PodcastNeek.com. I co-host the Bohemican podcast with Pete Coleman, and there's also a new Bohemican YouTube channel. We take on topics from throughout Czech history, which overlaps with Austrian and German history, 
and also take you around the Czech Republic and talk about the local history from certain sites. And then on the YouTube video, we actually take you to places like the underground Prague or sites associated with the Knights Templar and even a real alchemy lab, which reminds me that we also do a show called the History of Alchemy podcast, which is part history of science and part history of mysticism and magic and everything else. And we already have quite a few shows up there. We've already taken a look at over 50 alchemists and some of the theories they believed in and came up with themselves. And then I also host the History of Germany podcast, which is in English and German. And I also translate The Secret Cabinet from its original German, Das Geheime Kabinett, which is a podcast about all sorts of strange historical artifacts generally kept in the back rooms, locked away in secret cabinets. Uh, in museums, not to offend the ladies and gentlemen of the time. Anyways, if you want to see all the shows and all the videos and everything we do under one roof, that's podcastnik.com. That's podcastnik.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.